because that that speaks to me yeah uh, on a very deep level about wine in general actually about the purpose of wine and how I think you know I'm going a little bit off piece here no good but good. I mean I think we, we often we've we've forgotten what you know the humble roots of what wine was um, you know wine was a restorative it yeah. wasn't supposed to be like I'll show me yours if you show me mine <laughs> it was supposed <laughs> to be all about this this kind of healthy water would have killed you back in the kind of medieval times right. you know you probably would die of dysentery or something some waterborne disease so travelers drank wine yeah. at the end of a heavy day of work or travel and they went to a, a house that later be called, became called a restaurant because it restored you restore the French herb mm-hmm. and and for me that's what wine at its essence is it's a humble it's a humble drink it's a humble beverage and of course that's not the only thing that it is we, we must think outside the box and we must celebrate it right. but we must never forget that hello and welcome to the podcast everybody my name is Mark Rayshap and this is another bottle down where we talk about wine and the wine industry and get to meet some really cool people today it's all about South Africa and we'll be interviewing Adam Mason who is head winemaker of Molderbosch vineyards in Stellenbosch the region and we're gonna learn all about the grapes that they're doing what South Africa is doing really well and uh, what the what wines they're making at Molderbosch so I hope you really do enjoy we'll start off by hearing Adam Mason give a little rundown as to the geography of the wine regions the the wine uh, production areas of um, South Africa are situated in the, the Western Cape for the large part, although there are some sort of really interesting inland areas springing up, right. sort of hitherto unexplored wine appellations. <laughs> but um, historically, uh, it's been sort of centered in the Western Cape, which is a, um, a Mediterranean climate. Um, we have, um, we're bordered on, on the West Coast by the Atlantic Ocean. Um, a very cold uh, Atlantic current, and kind well, of the epicenter there is is Cape Town, right? So correct, the, and, yeah. and which is not the capital. A lot of folks, uh, I think, it's maybe the more uh, more visited area because it's a little bit more beautiful, right? For sure, sure. <laughs> it's, it's the tourist capital, definitely. But uh, yeah, Pretoria is the is the is the capital, right? And then the main and then the main wine bouncing off space. So how long? You know, I guess when I think of South Africa, I most first think of your region, Stellenbosch, right? Is mm-hmm. that is that kind of the historic center as well as the maybe the most well-known? Is it like the Napa Valley of South Africa? Yeah, I think it has become. Um, historically, the, 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 big, the birthplace of South African wine was the Constantia Valley. Right. Um, and that was um, established in 1685 by the governor of the Cape, Simon van der Stel. Um, but... The very first sort of um, the first town established outside of Cape Town was called Stellenbosch, which he named in honor of himself, Simon van der Stel Stellenbosch, and that has become the I guess the the default Napa Valley of South Africa. Yeah, yeah, very visited, and and yeah. also, can you uh, describe the the views, the vistas? I mean, it's a breathtaking place, right? Yeah, it's, it's quite uh, it is quite striking. You have this. Um, uh, sea sort of scape on the one side of it. We have a, um, a bay called False Bay, uh, which is on the kind of the southern, um, I guess, the southeastern side of Stellenbosch. And these rocky kind of uh, mountains that uh, fall behind us. And um, they're sort of they're snow-capped in winter. Yeah. And um, there are still sort of leopards and baboons and lots of kind of wild animals living in those mountains. So you're very much on the on the kind of the frontier of, of wilderness. 
and then you have um, it's a, it's a, you know South Africa is a land of, of of many juxtapositions and many contrasts. So you have this kind of very plush um, kind of manicured vineyard area, and then on the other side of that you have an area called the Cape Flats, mm-hmm. which is a which is basically a sand bed, and that is home to probably so two and a half million uh, sort of people living in in shacks in in, in sort of informal kind of housing. And then on the other side of that, you have Cape Town, the city, which is once again it's um, it's a biodiversity hotspot. You know, yeah. it's, it's one of uh, one of a f- one of the most densely kind of um, or, or kind of um, while um, um, intensely populated uh, sort of uh, places on the Earth's surface in terms of its diversity of plant species, and uh, so it's a it's a um, it's kind of highly kind of threatened mm-hmm. by uh, developments, and all this happening in a in a space of maybe. Uh, sort of a, I'm talking kilometers here, so maybe That's a 60-kilometer okay. radius. Right. You know, so it's, a, it's an insane spot on the Earth's surface. And we're going to talk a little bit, you have some biodiversity projects going on at Mulderbosch, right, incorporating some of this uh, biodiversity into the vineyards as well? Yeah, we're, we're members of something called the um, the Wine Biodiversity uh, Initiative, BWI, Biodiversity right. and Wine Initiative, which was essentially created by landowners who, who realized that a lot of their vineyard land um, was encroaching on on the natural kind of fynbos habitat, which is which is under threat, yeah. and so they got in touch with uh, or Cape Nature, I think, uh, got in touch with these landowners, and they put together a program where um, landowners agreed to seed uh, development on a certain portion of their land yeah. in order to just preserve that for future generations. So it's a, a very nice example of collaboration between state and private landowners, and um, I mean they get nothing for it. They get no compensation other than um, being able to put a, a sticker on their bottles, um, you know. Which, which I think, for people who who have a an interest in social kind of or have a social conscience, would feel, you know, proud of what these people are doing and maybe more inclined to kind of pick their bottle up rather than someone who's not part of that. And I think that in the wine industry, we have such an eye to that because you cannot be short sighted in the wine industry. I mean, vines take so long to come to maturity and wine can age. And and so I think that uh, the wine industry is maybe a natural fit for that. Yeah. And I think also, you know, with with people in the wine industry, I think mostly people who respect nature and who are yeah. kind of in in love with nature so they see that connection and you cannot it's it's, it's a the health health of the environment um is kind of metaphorical for health of your own your own kind of vineyards and your own business they're, right. they're, they're closely into intertwined absolutely um well an amazing initiative and and i, I applaud Mulderbosch for for you know going going that route what so so We've talked a bit about Stellenbosch, and we're going to get into the grape varieties that you have going on there. What else would be the, you know, where did the wine industry go, and what else is uh, notable in the South African uh, landscape of, of, of wine lands? Well, look, I'll, I'll cut straight to the chase uh, with, my, <laughs> with my Mulderbosch hat on. Um, okay. But I think it speaks for many producers in South Africa, too. I mean, sh- um, South Africa has about 98,000 hectares of vines at the moment for wine production. And 18% of those are planted to Chenin Blanc. So in summation, South Africa has more uh, areas under hectare than the the rest of the world put together of Chenin Blanc. I think the Loire Valley is about 9,500 hectares. And then you have smatterings in in places like New Zealand, 
um, Astrolope, funny enough, has a has an amazing Shannon. Uh, Western Australia has a little bit, and then um, obviously in California, historically yeah. there was a, there were large plantings of Shannon. Um, so we have this large area under vine. It's a it's a variety that has been grown in South Africa for sort of over two centuries. Um, as early as the sort of early 1700s, there are uh, references to to a, a grape variety uh, called Stien, so spelled S T E E N, and that is a colloquialism for Chenin Blanc. Um, so we have records of it being kind of cultivated as far back as the early 1700s. So it's very much a part of the DNA of our wine sort of fa- it's a wine story. It's part of our it's, part of, it's in our nature. Yeah, and uh, you know as far as it's as much as it has acclimatized to our conditions, I think that culturally it has become kind of part of our story. And so for me, it's the default national grape of South Africa, yeah. without a doubt. I, I <coughs> And I totally agree. And, and Chenin Blanc is some of my favorite wine coming out of South Africa and, uh, and around the world as far as in the white world. Um, but you mentioned something interesting that the, that the Masal selection or, you know, that's how uh, a, a vineyard might change overall genetic makeup because of time and then mutations. Uh, you know, there's slight changes in the genetic material that then uh, get selected over time. That was a big thing that was going on and what might differentiate Chenin Blanc from South Africa from other areas of the world, right? Absolutely. And I think this is why you know, the vine is such a phenomenal plant. Yeah. Um, I think it's a very intelligent plant. Um, I mean, all plants, I think, are, are intelligent, but I think there's something about the vine that appeals to man's desire to. Uh, there's a co- there's a collaboration between man and vine, and that's I think that's part of why it's tracked Western civilization, or perhaps Western civilization has tracked vines. Who knows? Who's yeah. smarter? But I mean, there's this there's this amazing journey that a vine um, undergoes whenever it's removed from its origins. Um, so we have this. As you mentioned, you know the the massile selection over the t- over time. So vines are very um, muta- mutatively unstable. You know they can drop a chromosome every now and then through UV uh, light or uh, you know some stress or, or or environmental kind of conditions. They they can they can really change without any interven- intervention from man. And um, what massile selection does is it looks at the the morphological features of a plant. So a farmer or a vineyard who owns vineyards and who might need to kind of replant some of his vines would in historically select strong vines from within his, his vineyard to, to propagate in order to plant in the spaces where vines had perhaps died from a disease or whatever. And, uh, you know, that's a process of natural selection. So yeah. those, those vines that were selected were by, by nature the ones that did well under those conditions on those sites. Yeah. And many farmers did it before the advent of commercial nurseries. So when you have a, a, a vine that has been present in a country for that long, you're going to have a very kind of unique expression of those of that vine's identity closely linked to that country. Right. So even though we, we respect the fact that Chenin Blanc's home, his birthplace is the Loire, um, you know, or it's, you know, his parents certainly come from Europe. Right. We we take this kind of a uh, sort of proud ownership of what Chenin Blanc is to the South African wine industry. Absolutely, and I think that that is key. And so, you as a winemaker, do you? Uh, 
uh, have, do you see those kind of differences in the landscape of Stellenbosch? I mean, do you see kind of Chenin planted in one place might show a little bit different or the wines are, are, are drastically different? And is that something that you think about? Are you kind of constantly thinking that, oh, um, you, you know, to, to put it in one way, a, a certain block might be a high, more highly evolved version of Chenin or more appropriate for what you want to do? Absolutely. So, you know, we have, there's a, one of the challenges and one of the kind of the virtues at the same time of, of, of say, let's just say Stellenbosch, but it, it goes for the larger sort of South African wine industry is the, is the incredible um, um, heterogeneity right. of, of our landscape. So yeah. within a very short space of time, even within the same vineyard, you might find a very big difference in soil types. So it's a, it's you know we're becoming much more aware of regional differences uh, in South Africa, uh, generally in wi- in our wine industry, but very much so. And in, in you know I can speak from my experience that's in Stellenbosch and at Mulderbosch, we are excited by the the that kind of aspect of what we do to drill down deeper into the the kind of real essence of of, of Chen and Blanc on different sites and. On the way to the studio, we were listening to one of your podcasts, and it was, uh, I forget his full name, but Patrick from the Loire. Baudouin. Patrick, uh, Patrick Baudouin. Baudouin. And um, you know, what he said was that Chenin Blanc is a modest grape variety, and I loved that. Yeah. I loved the way that he, he referred to it as this recessive variety that kind of stands back and allows the terroir to come forward or the, the site to come forward. Yeah. And so when, he, when, when Patrick spoke about this humble or this modest variety, I just loved it. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what we're doing with Shannon in South Africa. I think um, we, we'd certainly see that we've, you know, first of all, we've got this wealth of of, of vine material that we can work with, eighteen thousand hectares almost. We have a high percentage of those, um, probably, you know, in terms of pure numbers, because of the stats, we've got a large number of hectares that are established old vines. Yeah, and so there there are relics of a time before commercial vineyards kind of sold clones and. They're, they speak of up. They, they, they tell of that journey, and they, they they have a value that is, you know, becoming more and more appreciated now. Yeah, and we're really looking forward to some more of the single vineyard Chenin Blancs that are coming, that are starting to come in here. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about your single <laughs> vineyards. But I want to round out. So um, as far as other grape varieties that are uh, really playing in Stellenbosch, you still think that Shannon is, uh, is maybe the one that expresses itself more drastically, uh, differently than any other grape variety. To my mind, it does. I mean, okay. I know, I know you're not asking me a direct question about Pinotage, so I'll just come out here and say it. I mean, <laughs> Pinotage has, has often been associated with, with South Africa has, I think, been pigeonholed. As mm-hmm. oh, you know, you're South African, show us your Pinotage. You know, what is that, is that all you can do? Um, and you know, I think it's that might have been our our unique selling point um, two decades ago, and we might have thought, you know, this is what we've got to show the world. But I think you know, there's been a very slow and natural maturation of our identity yeah. in this in the global arena, and that kind of maturation cannot come. There's no short track to it. Right. Uh, there's a very old saying in the wine industry, and it goes like overnight success in the wine industry takes 20 years yeah. and it's so it's so appropriate to both commercial success but I think you know if you look back 20 years ago where South Africa was to where we are now there's a generation of young winemakers that have been able to travel freely around the world right. and glean knowledge from, from other winemakers we've had many winemakers come into our wineries and vineyards and transfer their knowledge 
through all layers of our industry. Right. Um, you know, we've had kind of such a we've we've also discovered that you know on re-entry into the national into the international arena, we were just so keen on emulating Bordeaux, emulating you know the success of Australia, trying to emulate New Zealand. You know, we realized first of all we never can. And we don't want to now because we realize that what we have is much more compelling. If we just, you know, act, you know, just are uh, just trying to tell our, our our own story, and that's what we should be doing. Yeah, I mean, this we could probably talk for a really long time about what was happening twenty, thirty years ago when Australia was starting to say, "Hey, guys, international wine lovers, look at us. We're doing Shiraz. We 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 are known for this." And then they get almost pigeonholed into Shiraz. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Chile then comes out and is, is like inexpensive cab. And, uh, and, and it's partially them doing it because little sound bites are easier than full hour-long radio shows. <laughs> you know? and, and, and then Argentina comes out and uh, they're Malbec. And then South Africa is kind of like, well, we, we have this diversity, but you know what's our what's our 30 second pitch yeah, we have to pick one <laughs> it's uh, you know but it's it's hard because there's no 30 second pitch there's you you have uh long historyed vineyards and you have uh, a very suitable climate uh and so you grow a lot of different grapes that are succeeding and then oftentimes they're blended and blends are hard to kind of come by do you think that, that what i'm saying is a fair statement yeah, I, I do agree. I agree that our diversity is at the same time our strength and our weakness. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, South Africans in general, we have a production mentality. If you look at the history of Southern Africa, it was uh, very much kind of um, explored for its minerals um, and its kind of natural riches that were traded as commodities. So, yeah. you know, I grew up in a country where there were maybe three cheeses on the shelf. <laughs> there was a, an orange cheese, and a white cheese, and a feta. And... Um, you know, it was the same. Everything was controlled by a, a board. You know, the banana board, the bread board, the orange board. You know, the you know KWV was the, the the wine board. So there's this monopoly culture that we've inherited, and that's it's a it's a kind of it's something that we it's a shackle that we that we we are slowly but surely shaking off. Do you think you've shaken it off? We're not there in, yet. In, okay. But, we, but what you know, my my very long-winded response to your very sort of clear question, which I still haven't <laughs> answered, was that um, there's a there's a new generation. Of South African wine makers and wine uh, marketers, and the industry is in a very, very exciting zone right now. Yeah. Um. So, so, so we need. I, I don't. I think we definitely are more excited about Chenin Blanc as a as an industry than we ever have been. And I think we realize that that perhaps is the variety that is. It is a strong suite for us. Yeah. You know, as much as there are people who have done very well with um, championing Pinotage and have owned it and have done very well. Canon Corp is a great example. Right. You know, they've done an amazing job with, with Pinotage. And, um, and, you, and, and, and as a South African, you know, I see their success as my success. Sure. You know, a rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. Um, so you have, to, you have to kind of accept that. But I think um, my personal view is that Chenin Blanc offers more exciting opportunities than any other single variety in South Africa. Well, I think the lesson, and as you're saying this, it's kind of striking me, is that, um, that, that mediocre wine and poor wine 
will, no matter what grape variety it is, will be a detriment to the industry. And superb wine will rise the industry and the consumer impressions. And it's kind of like you can't fool the consumer by just putting a hot grape variety on it. And I think that that's what, that's what Argentina is uh, suffering from right now is that there was excellent Malbec. Now everybody wants Malbec and now there's mediocre Malbecs coming in and now that's getting a bad name. So mm. uh, I think that South Africa is playing a good long game in this, you know, okay, let's not be kitschy about things. Uh, and I don't think Chenin Blanc is kitschy. I mean, there's real quality and there's real character and there's real story there. Yeah. Um, well, excellent. Let's let's kind of let's kind of move. That, that was a little poetic and a little broad industry, uh, you know, uh, uh, commentary. I think. <laughs> but well, I know. think South Africa is a. It's hard not to be kind of just to to ramble because yeah. it's just there's a there's a lot going on, and I think um, South Africans generally do relish an opportunity to tell a little bit about the country because I don't think. Um, People know a lot about it. Yeah. You know, I think uh, for many uh, consumers in the U.S., you know they they um, they seem interested in South Africa, and they listen when you when 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 you when I turn up to a tasting. People genuinely are curious. Right. So yeah, I do I do kind of like to give the. The, the bigger picture wherever possible. Yeah. Well, let's round out kind of these grape varieties that you're playing with and what you what your impressions are. We tasted a Sauvignon Blanc, uh, which was lovely. You have um, some kind of firm opinions on Sauvignon Blanc in South Africa, uh, which I'd like you to, to tell our listeners. Just, you know, is, is that... So Chenin is the most widely planted grape in South Africa. Is Sauvignon Blanc next? No, I think by a long margin, the next variety Chardon. is actually, I think, Merlot. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. As far as the well, we can go in in reds and white bounce. Uh, yeah, reds I and I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not having all all in my mind. But um, Sauvignon Blanc is. Um, I would say, it's it's got to be one of the the top five. Um, I certainly. I would say it's probably the second. Maybe it's the third or fourth. Because you've got Chardonnay too, which is big. I'm not going to Google it, but no, I mean, it'll okay. be quick to find it. But it'll be in the top five definitely, and it's and it's actually the biggest selling white wine, bottled white wine. In South Africa, oh. so consumers in South Africa can't get enough Sauvignon, and that does grate me slightly. I just think you've got to look beyond <laughs> Sauvignon sometimes. So, so yeah, you asked me about so Sauvignon Blanc for me, um, and it's not just in South Africa. I think it's uh, internationally. Yeah, <clears throat> I think it's a variety, or it is a variety that has a high natural acidity, and and what often happens with Sauvignon is that in order to capture that really pungent Sauvignon Blanc character, it's 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 often harvested a little too early, and the wines yeah. that are made with Sauvignon tend to be rather acidic. They're very attractive uh, aromatically, yeah. but I mean, you can only sniff a wine for so long. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's better to be drunk, ultimately. Right. Yeah. And um, so, so I've always had a, a, a view on Sauvignon that of all the varieties that I work with, it's the one variety that I'm most inclined to allow to ripen you know, a little bit more, yeah. a little, a little longer. Just leave it out there, just another degree of alcohol, because I think, or, or ripeness rather, because I think when that happens, you know, your acidity levels drop, and uh, you end up with a wine that's a little richer and a little rounder and far more drinkable. Yeah. We talk about smashable, actually. So you know, you've got to be able to smash a bottle between two people. Yeah. If you cannot smash a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc uh, with your kind of your other half, right. then there's something wrong with that wine. Yeah. You know, and that's the goal. You know. 
Well, you've you've come on the show another bottle down, so we 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 appreciate that, and and I think that you did achieve that in this uh, in in this release of Sauvignon Blanc. So, um, and and if you're just uh, joining us, this is another bottle down. My name is Mark Rayshap, and we're here with Adam Mason, who's winemaker at Mulderbosch. Uh, is is Mulderbosch the large one of the larger wineries in South Africa? And and is that fun for you, or is that um, is that a challenge? So, so yeah, Mulderbosch is. There are a lot of very very big wineries which we refer to as cooperatives, right. and co-ops generally service the grape growers whose sole kind of livelihood is producing grapes, and they sell the grapes on. The cooperatives are owned by the grape growers, so you'll find a lot of cooperatives in the areas like Robertson, um, in the Breda River Valley, and up on the west coast near the Orange River mouth. To up towards Namibia and all that west coast, there are a lot of massive uh, cooperatives. And, and, but and do they mostly supply? They mostly supply the the wines for the, the that region and for the actual farmers. I don't see many of those exported, or you might not know the label from which they are coming. So they would have traditionally provided wine to the KWV. Right. So they would have been the you know the KWV was the mothership. And they had these sort of satellites that produced wine and then sold, sold it into the KWV in bulk. Right. And they would have been then distilled to make brandy, etc. And And we've evolved a lot since then. Those cooperatives still exist and they often now export under their own labels. Right. Or they export just sort of generic South African wine, sort of entry-level wine. But uh, Mulderbosch probably would be referred to as a, a medium to large winery. Our total production is kind of three. 250,000 uh, cases of 12 bottles per year. Right. So that's just kind of over 3,000 tons in total. Um, and and so we we don't, we actually, we produce a lot of the wine at Mulderbosch, but there are also a few sites where we, we kind of do contract crush and winemaking on off-site because we don't have the scale on our on our kind of uh, right, winery right, to do right. all of that, but and then you as uh, as, as winemaker, do you kind of oversee some of the, the, those those uh, satellite sites and and um, and it, that must be kind of tricky logistically. Yeah, I mean that's what I do during harvest. Yeah, is, um, you right. know, I've got a very good um, a winemaker who I work with. His name is Mick Craven, and uh, Mick and I basically. Run the run the winemaking at Mulderbosch. I'm the the, 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 the head winemaker, which means that he does all the work, and uh, <laughs> I kind of uh, during harvest I will I will spend most of my time driving from from vineyard to vineyard, making sure that we're getting the grapes kind of picked at the right time, right. and then you know overseeing the production in the other sites. It's just a matter of just housekeeping, really. Yeah. I mean, we've been doing it now. I've been at Mulderbosch for for this is my um, sixth vintage. And, um, you know, the system's in place. It's always very difficult in the beginning to set up a system. Right. But once that system is running, I think you just need to steer it correctly. You just tap it. You know, if it goes a little bit too far left, tap it back on track and just keep going. Yeah. So we, that's, that's, how we, that's how we roll. Um, the, the most important thing for me is the vineyard program. Yeah. And, um, you know, th- that was the first thing that we did at Mulderbosch was to, was to overhaul the way in which we 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 source and contract grapes, um, in terms of where they're from, the sites, and with whom we are working, yeah. you know, the partnerships, right? And 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 that took a, a couple of years to bed down, and now that that's bedded down, we know that we're getting consistently good, reliable grapes that right. will work with the style of wines that we want to produce. And then the next most important thing is D-Day. When do you harvest? Yeah. And I mentioned it with the Sauvignon. You know that date of harvesting slightly later, 
and it, and it obviously depends on the site, and that's why I need to go and to drive around to say, to see that the that that choice of de- of sort of harvest date is appropriate for that particular block and that variety, right. and that takes up a lot of time. Um, and then you know once the once those grapes are harvested, you know it's housekeeping, not yeah. to diminish the the efforts of the winemaking. But I'm sure, you know, kind of Mick would agree. I know we agree on that. It's just, it's very much about keeping it simple right. and just keeping it kind of streamlined and making sure that we, we do the right things at the right time. Well, I think that that's a smart way of looking at it. And, and from my conversations with winemakers, more and more winemakers uh, are, you know, paying more attention to vineyards. You have to. More and more restaurateurs are paying attention to where their produce is coming mm-hmm. and where their animals are coming from. So uh, I think that that's a wonderful evolution for, you know, the finer things, lovers of, of us uh, all around there. Um, you also do Chardonnay. So uh, it, which has, you know, there's a little bit of a lashback in some instances. Talk about your Chardonnay that I think it's, you know, you've got this beautiful uh, texture to it. I mean, it's it's the, the most consumed white grape in the world uh, for a reason. Yeah, for good reason. It <laughs> yeah, is, a, right. it is, it is um, the wines that I spend the most money on yeah. uh, when I buy internationally would be Chard, but... Um, Chardonnay is a is a is a is an amazing variety. It's a it's an incredibly robust variety. Yeah. That's and that that element of it appeals to me too. Uh, that it is, it's not this kind of um, sort of wilting wallflower. It's just it's a it's a very it's 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 exceptionally complex, yeah. but it's exceptionally robust at the same time. So, the way we make our Chardonnay is very much um, sort of oxidative juice handling. Um, in order to to get rid of any unstable uh, substrates, and and what does that mean? Ox- so, if you break that down, oxidative juice handling. So you're allowing oxygen to to touch it when before it's fermenting. Yeah. So when you go to university, <coughs> they tell you all about the benefits of sulfur dioxide and how you need to protect juice from oxygen. Right. Because oxygen is the is it will destroy. Uh, kind of nuances and precursors that haven't even yet been kind of expressed by the yeast during fermentation, but you know. So, so and it, and and what what it, what you kind of discover later in life is that yeah, that is true. That's that's been proven by science and it does work. Right. But um, not for all. Not all varieties are born equal. Right. Not all have the same family of uh, compounds that determine their flavor spectrum. Some are bound to sugars, which are very stable against oxidation, and some have got sulfur-bound uh, molecules, which are very uh, uh, sort of susceptible to oxidation. Mm. So Chardonnay falls into the sugar-bound uh, family of flavor compounds and ar- aromatics. Sauvignon Blanc falls into the sulfur-bound component. So that's why when you treat, when you make Sauvignon and you make Chardonnay, they have a completely different approach to winemaking. Sauvignon, you will, you know, will definitely. Add a little bit of sulfur to the juice just to stop it from browning, because we know that if it browns, you've lost some of those nuances that are actually latent at that point, but that'll be as expressed later by yeast. Yeah. Um, whereas with Chardonnay, we press. We don't add any juice to the to the to the grapes when they arrive. We don't add any uh, sulfur to the juice tray. Only when the juice is in the settling tank do we make a sulfur addition. And by that stage, the juice is already slightly brown. Uh, sometimes it's very brown, depending on the temperature and depending on the ripeness, because pH then plays a big role in that yeah. uh, equation. And um, so it's quite counterintuitive. You've got this brown juice, right? And 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 it's amazing. It's like this for me when I first really saw this working in practice. 
it's you're a little just bit scared. Like, it's like alchemy. You yeah, know, it's got the heart <laughs> of this brown juice that looks like really poor instant coffee <laughs> turn into this sort of green, vibrant, uh, sort, of, sort of scintillating wine. How yeah. did that happen? And that is the benefit of, of oxidative juice handling. And it's very different to making oxidized wines, yeah. which, with, which will then kind of be, you know, once their wines become oxidized right. or during the maturation process have no sulfur. And I'm, I'm, personally, I'm less of a fan of that. I think, you know, you need to add your sulfur once the wine has finished fermenting because at that point, you know, the wines can be quite sort of susceptible to oxidation. And then it won't fall out. Whereas before you're just gonna fermentation, lose, you're going to yeah. lose freshness and yeah. sort of delicacy and nuance for the style of wine that we want to make. Yeah, you know, obviously it does work on other wines, but for 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 commercially kind of um, very smashable wines, you yeah. you need to you make sure that you've got flavor and you've got you know, lovely sort of fruit aromatics preserved right. in the bottle. Yeah, and do those wines age a little bit better? I mean, we've we've um, you know, I've seen some freshness uh, with Moldavash wines uh, that that you know after maybe some several years where other wines might might be falling off a little bit. Hundred percent, and I've actually seen I've seen I've seen examples firsthand of you know treating Chardonnay as you would treat a Sauvignon, and perhaps five years later those wines are brown in the bottle, mm-hmm. and Chardonnay is treated oxidatively in the juice phase where they are just. Sort of as fresh as a button. Yeah, they still got their lovely green hue, and um, you know they're delightful. Yeah. So for me, there's no there's no doubt in my mind that it actually preserves the wine for a far longer period of time. Yeah. And it's it's, it's kind of you can we can go very poetic here if you want, but it's a <laughs> bit like kind of like growing up tough and actually being kind of resilient in life and yeah. maybe being able to survive more adversity as you get older and kind of coming out the other end. Kind of a, a kind of a richer, more complete person, um, for want of one example, in many. But I think that for me is what we do with these. With and that's why I mentioned how rugged Chardonnay is. Yeah. But it's got that duality. You know, on one hand, it's this unbelievably delicate, nuanced yeah. wine, and and yet it's it's able to withstand a lot of sort of adversity in its in its in its juice phase. So Chardonnay is the grape that pushes back the bully. I hundred <laughs> percent believe that. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Um, let's. Let's. Um, we're, we're a little short on time. I want to talk about the reds and the rosé too, right? Um, let's. Can we can we talk about the reds for just just two minutes? Sure. Um, the the faithful hound is really the kind of the the flagship red, um, and then you have red grapes that also make up the the famous Moldebosch rosé, right? Absolutely. Tell us about the, those grapes. So um, the faithful hound is our um, is our sort of I think you call it the meritage here in the states. It's, uh, we call it the Bordeaux blend. And the Faithful Hound was first released in 1992, and it was one of the very first South African red blends to be made using all five Bordeaux varieties. So it's, it'll either be Cabernet Sauvignon or Cabernet Franc dominant, followed by Merlot, Malbec, and uh, Petit Verdot. And I love using Petit Verdot. It's a variety that has a lot of acidity and wonderful aromatics. And in South Africa, being a hot climate, yeah, regardless of what anyone talks about, sort of, cool this or cool that it's it's categorized as a hot climate there are cooler pockets but um you know we can do with all the natural acidity that we can get and pv definitely provides that in the blend but it's um it's it's kind of a it's one of those wines that is approachable on release and yet if you if you like to hang on to your wines for a few years sort of sell it for five to ten years it's also going to have the legs to 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 mature quite gracefully yeah 
Yeah, and I would say that's because of the the, the sourcing program. You know, we source virus-free material from some very good sites, and specifically, you know, looking for um, the correct site for each of those different varieties. And then, you know, when you put the blend together, we know we're working with the best possible kind of quality fruit from f- for the blend. Right. And then the rosé, uh, is it 100% Cab? Yeah, the rosé is 100% Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, and that is, a, that is a very much a, a, a rosé project from the vineyard to the bottle. Right. So we, we, we grow and contract grapes for the rosé. The, you know, we've, we, we allow our growers who provide those to crop the grapes at a slightly higher level than they normally would, uh, slightly higher yield. Um, so we pay a little bit less per ton for the grapes, but they can still make their money off their, 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 their vineyards. Right. Uh, so, and it works for rosé because you're ending up with lighter color, uh, better acidity, and we harvest the grapes uh, quite early, so at about 21 and a half bricks, and that'll end up giving you about a 12 and a half percent alcohol wine, which is just ideal for rosé. So it's definitely not a uh, an afterthought. It's not a senior project. It's right. a straight to press method rosé, and uh, the result is this lovely kind of light, um, Provençal style, uh, sort of uh, in terms of its texture, it's sort of uh, it's got a, it's got a hint of fruit sweetness, but it's 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 savory and it's delicious and it's got a beautiful balance and. Um, and I must say, it's been it, it's it's really picking up in in the U.S. We've seen the sales just start to climb, and uh, it's the perfect kind of wine for this climate. Absolutely, if you like yeah. to kind of hang out and barbecue, or if you prefer sushi or whatever your kind of bent, it's a, it's a wine that's incredibly versatile. And um, yeah, well, we drink a lot of rosé here in Austin, Texas. Adam Mason, thank you so much for coming on to the show. And uh, next time you're in Austin, be sure to stop by. Mark, thanks so much for having me. It was a, a real uh, pleasure to meet you, and uh, yeah, thanks for your time. Huge thank you to Adam Mason. He's the head winemaker of Mulderbosch Vineyards in South Africa, and also a big thank you to Janice Frago, who works for Terroir, and they purchased Mulderbosch in 2010, uh, and then installed Adam as head winemaker in 2011. So, um big thank you to everybody involved uh make sure to like us and follow us on social media uh it's another bottle down you can also search the itunes store and subscribe to the podcast so you never never miss a beat um and i I really look forward if you have any comments about the podcast would love to hear it and send me an email at mark at the illuminated bottle.com that's it folks have a wonderful week and uh we'll be hearing from some greek winemakers next week so till then 